Welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner. We are continuing our podcast series from home during the coronavirus pandemic. As a result of the following is a lightly edited version of a policy call we have already held. We will now proceed with the podcast. Welcome to today's macro call. We've been saying for between 2020, it, it certainly is a macro year. ACG Analytics macro report comes out every Tuesday morning, led by Chris Serwinski, Bart Ustevelt. Chris is our head international analyst. Bart joins us from the Atlantic Council and Moody's uh, Sovereign Risk in London. Also on the phone is John East, our head of research. A lot to talk about in the macro space, and it's going to stay constant going forward. I'm going to turn it over to Chris Zerwinski to begin a discussion on the question of will we see another stimulus bill out of Washington. There's going to be a vote today around 12 on the Republican proposal. It is a bill that is roughly half a trillion, although as of yesterday there wasn't an exact score, but it's less than that because some of the money has been repurposed, so it's probably more like $300 billion, I should say. That vote will fail. I'm not even sure if any Democrat will support it, including Senator Manchin of West Virginia or Senator Jones of Alabama, but it's not going to pass. There's a 60-vote threshold. Even were it to pass, the House wouldn't take it up, and it's not really a vehicle for beginning negotiations anew with the House. It is simply a messaging bill, as we say, which is to show voters that Republicans did something. Outside of that, though, if it is a messaging bill, it's $500 billion-ish. Does it include everything in terms of Republican priorities? How, how do you read into a potential for a new bill that's bigger later based upon what's in this bill now? Well, so what's in this bill is largely school funding. There's some additional funding for medical equipment and, and medical research, not a lot for medical research. There is $15 billion for child care assistance for low-income individuals. And is there's an extension of the loan program so that people who have received loans can reapply if they can demonstrate severe economic necessity. Also, there is a, an extension of $300 per week of enhanced unemployment benefits to qualifying individuals. What is not there is another round of stimulus checks. But right now, the Republican caucus yesterday largely unified around this bill. Senator Paul of Kentucky is not going to vote for it. It is not clear if Senator Hawley of Missouri will vote for it, but it should get around 51 Republican votes so they can say that the Senate majority did try to pass something. What I'm trying to say writ large is that this is not a prelude to future negotiations. This is not, well, the Senate does something, the House does something, the leaders come together and they come up with a compromise. That's not what this is. And right now, there is no indication that the two sides and the White House are really going to come together for compromise. Everyone says they want one. All of the principal actors here have said they want to come together but none of them actually makes the first move. Yesterday, I see these headlines, right, going across Bloomberg. Let's say, for example, you know, Ted Cruz says there will be no bill. And then I see Senate Minority Leader Schumer is optimistic that there will be some sort of, considering what you just said, that you don't think that this is something where the House does one thing, the Senate does one thing, and they come together on a bigger bill. How do you bridge the gap between those two comments? Because obviously Schumer is not the one driving this process, right? Well, Schumer is definitely one of the people in the room, but he has largely deferred to Speaker Pelosi during this entire process. 
McConnell's in a tough space because he wants to protect vulnerable members, and he has wanted relief money to go out, particularly for schools and for some other priorities. But he has a caucus that he barely got yesterday to agree to the scaled-down bill, which is partially offset. And it's the deficit concerns that are really dividing the Republican caucus. So Schumer... I saw the Bloomberg headlines, but I carefully examined what Schumer said. He basically said, when Republicans realize they have to capitulate to us, we can resume negotiations. And that is just more of the same. Everyone is reiterating where they left off when the negotiations crumbled over a month ago, and they haven't budged an inch. Yeah, that that makes sense. And, And what makes this seem even less likely to me is there's no longer any impediment on government funding, for example, right? So that could have been a forcing issue, but it seems like Speaker Pelosi and, and Treasury Secretary Mnuchin have said that we will not let funding lapse. So if that's the case, could throw COVID relief into that, but it seems like that's not the idea. You know, you're left with what is going to get these negotiators to the table with the bigger package. So for me, that seems to underscore your point. So when government funding runs out on September 30th, Congress is going to have to pass legislation to fund the government or we have a government shutdown. Attaching pandemic relief to that funding bill was always a possibility. It's never been a popular one, and it's now been firmly rejected by all the key lawmakers. Final question here on the, any type of you know relief package. At what point is this just a complete lost cause and we're not getting any deal? I mean, if I were in the White House, I would be doing everything I could to move as many members of the Senate Republican caucus as possible because all spending could aid in the president's reelection effort. And so I'm a little bit surprised, but we have a chief of staff at the White House who I think is reapprising his role as a conservative member of the Freedom Caucus, you know, as a Tea Party group. Those interests diverge from those of the president. So it's been very difficult, I think, for Democrats to negotiate with Republicans because you don't see the forceful hand of the White House here. Yep. And so without that, there's really not something from the top to get this done. One last thing. I don't know what could change in terms of some catalyst. Maybe if the White House lets Secretary Mnuchin be the principal negotiator, that that could change the calculus. But I don't think we're going to see that in September because I don't think there's enough time to pass a continuing resolution. Now, if there were a change, though, you would see a bill move through Congress at lightning speed. That's a good point. Uh, I want to move outside of the COVID bill itself and just briefly touch on the state of U.S. elections. There are more polls coming out. It does seem like the race is tightening, as you've been predicting, John, both at the presidential level and also in some of these Senate races. Are there any of these battleground states that look to you like they're flipping from a Biden 5, 6, 7 percent lead to within margin of error? Yes. Polling data is actually pretty terrible. And what I'm seeing is a pretty wide divergence between a lot of more established so-called credible pollsters who have bigger budgets showing Biden with a clear lead in the battleground states, but not an insurmountable, especially if you compare polling statistics this year to what they were this time in the race against Secretary Clinton. But I'm seeing smaller polling firms, many of whom are state-based or less well-known, showing Trump a lot closer. And when I look through the polls, it doesn't look like they're not credible at all. So there is a divide in the polling data, but what we're seeing is a narrowing of the race. 
To give you an example, though, of some of the problems with polling data, we had two polls yesterday out of Pennsylvania. One showed Biden up by nine points. One showed him up by four points. We have a poll today which shows them tied. And we had some other polling data that came out over the weekend that showed a much closer race in Pennsylvania, certainly not nine points. It was more like two points. The noise in the polling data makes trusting what you're seeing very difficult. I think that's a good point. But when you begin to see it in so many polls, it could be indicative of a broader trend. And it's what you said on the on the national level as well, right? When you take these national polls, even though we don't care if he wins California by, you know, 99% to 1% in the popular vote, like that doesn't impact the Electoral College. But at the end of the day, if you do see a big enough shift in these national polls, it is indicative of a broader trend. So I wanted to ask one last question on this. The probability, the possibility, I should say, that the winner who's named on election night is not actually who is sworn into office, and the possibility that we don't have any type of clarity as to who's being declared victor uh, for several weeks. Unfortunately, not much clarity I can provide on how quickly we're going to get results, because there's so many things that could go wrong, and there are a lot of things that I know will go wrong. So I anticipate California, for instance, is going to take weeks to count their ballots. Now, California, as you said, doesn't matter. That state is not going to Trump. But they do have to certify the results and get them before the Electoral College. That is a hard deadline that's in the Constitution. It is December 14th. Now, if a state cannot certify its election, they don't participate in the Electoral College. So that really throws things well off. There's another problem where if you have, let's say you have a very close election in Florida, there's the possibility for competing slates of electors. Florida is probably not the best example because their legislature and governor are Republican. But you have some states like Michigan where they have a Republican legislature and a Democratic governor. If you have a close election there, there is a, there is a legal question of who gets to certify the electors. It looks to me like the best evidence is the governor, because that's what the 1874 untested statute that Congress passed after the, that disastrous election says. But one could imagine a legislature passing a rule that says that the governor must certify electors that the legislature chooses. So we would have court cases on that. So unlike Bush v. Gore, where you had one credible court case that got to the Supreme Court, we could have a myriad number of credible court cases. So what you really hope is that the election is not close. David, now let's talk a little bit about some policy issues that could impact those polls. U.S.-China relations is, again, in the spotlight. We're talking more about technology companies decoupling. The latest idea out there is that the United States could add SMIC, the Chinese semiconductor company, to the entity list banning U.S. companies from doing business with it. This came out in an interesting manner. It's leaked on the Friday afternoon. It's gotten a lot of press, a lot of play. Obviously, the market's taking it seriously. Do you think that the administration is incentivized to move forward with this? I don't, for a couple of reasons. Number one, Friday afternoon leak. usually have people like Peter Navarro's fingerprints on them. It's a hawkish administration on China, but a Biden administration would be probably equally hawkish with maybe some smooth edges. Uh, SMIC doesn't neatly fit into any of the entity list buckets they've used in the past. There, there's no indication that they are abusing Uyghurs, other human rights violations. 
There's no direct evidence that they are involved in the South China Sea, Hong Kong. There's no evidence that they're supplying the Chinese military. It is a company that is almost not quite 50% owned by the Chinese state. It was listed on the New York Stock Exchange a couple of years ago. It moved to Hong Kong. So I think right now the answer is no. However, look at U.S.-China relations will remain tense. The issue of the resolution of TikTok is approaching us. They have the ability to extend the negotiations, I think, for 30 days. So it's really now a question of do they have to be acquired by a U.S. entity in order to secure their data, or is there a U.S. government willing to accept some data management device inside the United States, much like China is with U.S. companies? Uh, is that a, a third option for TikTok? We can't read the Trump administration's mind, but negotiations are ongoing there, and it is possible that we will see a TikTok U.S. government data security agreement rather than an outright sale. But again, I'm predicting an extension until after the election. That's my prediction there. Appreciate that. And I do think on top of those two issues that over the last week or so, the president himself has really begun to speak, you know, if possible, even more aggressively about China. You can tell, and it's something that we've been saying for a long time, that come September, the anti-China rhetoric is just going to ratchet up. And so I would continue to look for that. These are the two areas that we're immediately looking at there. The United States is going to block imports of cotton and other products that uses forced labor in the Xinjiang region. These are the types of things that I suspect will continue over the next two to three months until the election and Bart, I want to bring you into, let's talk about the heat maps, the products that we put out every Monday. Can you tell us about the outlier of the week and what the international data on both COVID and external pressures on financing are, are doing to some of these EM and, and frontier markets? Yeah, sure. Thank you, Chris. We ranked the risk of 75 emerging and frontier markets in terms of the, the financial pressure on the government uh, due to the pandemic. And two trends kind of stand out for the entire data set. One is that for most countries, currency pressure against the dollar have abated. A lot of these currencies are up against the dollar. And it's really, there's a handful of outliers that are underperforming. Uh, Turkey, Brazil, Belarus, South Africa, Angola stand out as countries whose currency down close or over 20% on the year. You know, in this data set now, I have clear outliers of, of underperforming countries. Some of them are major emerging markets kind of in terms of, of their issuance. The second thing that is now evident in the data is that the growth rate of the pandemic globally keeps inching down. So there's always more cases than the week before, but the growth rate was in the 20s for a while. It's now inching down by like a 1% every week, 16 17% at the moment. In terms of the, the outlier, let me flag Morocco this week. Morocco does not have a whole lot of market debt. It does have some. It is doing well comparing it to the region and, and countries of similar size, about 200 cases per 100,000 population. And it got its finances in order early on by drawing down on its liquidity line that it already had with the IMF. It's not looking to have major financial stress this year, unlike others. I appreciate that, Bart. Thanks for the insight. And we'll look forward to the heat map next week as well. Outside of that, Bart, back to a bread and butter issue here. Brexit, thought we were going to be focused on COVID relief, U.S. elections. We're getting interesting developments. It's fun again with uh, between the U.K. and the EU. What's the U.K. government doing with this internal market bill? And let's talk about whether or not this is no deal again. 
Yeah, I, I, you know, no deal had been our expectation for some time now for a variety of reasons. The internal market bill throws another wrench into this. Intra-UK trade is about 90, 90 billion a year, so it's important for, for the government to address it. The way they chose to publish and, and discuss this bill has led people in Brussels to conclude that the UK is just not negotiating in good faith. And so while they're meeting this week, I really don't expect Barnier and Frost to, to come up with anything. It's going to take at least this week for some basic trust to be restored. Boris Johnson has had success by his own standards in terms of playing hardball and getting the EU to compromise on things. And the withdrawal agreement was one of those instances where it had things that for the hard Brexiteers were not palatable. And so that's one of the reasons that he's, he's choosing to step back from it. But it's hard for Brussels to, at the moment, trust anything that comes out of London. And so I think that at least a situation where it's hard to see how they can sit down and resolve the really tough issues that still need to be resolved about financial regulation, about fisheries, other major topics. I, I don't think they're in a position to talk about this this week. I think they're kind of trying to restore basic trust in each other. So this will be a long process then. Again, I, it's not going to be overcome in a week. And I'm really you know, questioning, are there any political restraints on both Boris Johnson and on the EU side that impact their negotiating room moving forward? I guess by saying that, I'm insinuating who is more likely to cave in these negotiations from either side. I think both sides are now prepared for what we've always called a hard Brexit. The EU it has decided to go a certain route. It's not going to make more meaningful compromises to the UK because this becomes too easy for the UK and, and if the deal that they end up striking is very beneficial, then it opens up Pandora's box of Poland and Hungary and others and, uh, I don't know, even Italy who, who start talking about leaving. So I think the EU is pretty dead set on its course and the UK is as well. You know, Boris is popular and does not have meaningful electoral constraints. So, yeah, a no-deal Brexit has been our base case for months now. And I think, you know, last week and this week's developments only make it more likely. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting to see the U.S. reaction. Speaker Pelosi was one of the first to jump on this and say that there will be no U.S.-U.K. free trade agreement if the U.K. violates the Good Friday Agreement. And the international ramifications of this will be felt for quite a long time. It's an interesting signal to send, right, as you're reestablishing relationships with the rest of the world that you don't intend to comply with the deal you struck last year. Yeah, it's, it's highly problematic for any of their upcoming negotiations. I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our team of analysts for offering their unique insights. You can also follow us on Twitter for further insight into capital markets and the political economy. If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at acg-analytics.com. Everyone have a good day. Thank you very much.